Hebrews 11, verse 32 to 40. And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. These are the very words of God. Jesus is greater, and Jesus is worth everything. Jesus is greater, and Jesus is worth everything. Meditate on those phrases for a minute. See if it's true in your own heart as I pray to open our time. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge before you the truth that Jesus is greater. He is everything. God, I come before you knowing the scripture that we're about to look into and the words that I'm prepared to say, and I know that in many of these things, I'm a hypocrite, and I need you to change my heart to align with your word so that I might be a better disciple walking in the strength that you provide. God, I speak to myself these words. I speak to my brothers and sisters the words from your word, which are the only words that have power. My words have no power. Lord God, move in our hearts Show us the glory of Christ so that you might receive the worship that you are due. You are worthy to be worshiped. You are worthy of everything. You are our lives. Help us now, Holy Spirit, to submit our hearts, our minds, our wills to the authority of your word and your spirit. Instruct us, guide us, lead us, change us, so that we can walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received in Christ. And God, for those who are not yet walking in the newness of life, Holy Spirit, convict of sin and righteousness and judgment and shine the light of the hope of salvation in Christ into their hearts this morning. 
God, you are able to do this, able to do incredibly more than all that we ask or think or imagine for your glory. And it is for your glory and in the name of Jesus that has power that I pray. Amen. The so-called heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11 that we've been studying can, if we're not careful, be nothing more than a list of familiar or in sometimes unfamiliar names and their examples of faith can, if we're not careful, become nothing more than a list of deeds done by super spiritual people at some point in the past and we don't really see how it fits. And we can read chapter 11, and in particular, verses 32 to 40 that we're looking at this morning, and ask, how does this relate to me? How does this relate to my faith? How do I generate this kind of faith? How do I emulate these people that we read about? Well, because we are sinful, selfish, prideful, We can, if we're not careful, see this passage and, like we tend to see all Scripture, primarily about me. In our sinful, selfish, prideful, but natural and understandable way, we read Scripture with the yearbook approach. For those of you who attended a high school where you got yearbooks, let me ask you, when you got your yearbook, what is the first thing that you did? Don't answer, because I know. You looked for yourself. And so did I. And that is how we naturally approach Scripture. But this book is not primarily about you and me. Yes, it includes us, but it's not ultimately about us. It is primarily about God. And when we get that order mixed up, we end up with bad, man-centered theology, which leads to practical applications that are often at cross-purposes with God because they are self-glorifying, not God-glorifying. So how do you approach Scripture? Your book approach? or God-centered. But why am I saying this? I say this because we need to remember that verses 32 to 40, with Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, with all their examples of faith to us, are in the context of all of chapter 11. And chapter 11 is in the context of chapter 10 before, and chapter 12 after. And chapters 10, 11, and 12 are in the context of all of the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is in the context of the entire New Testament, and the entire New Testament is in the context of this, the fullness of revealed Scripture. And the whole of Scripture is about God. His eternal nature, His original perfect creation, his betrayal by us rebellious sinners who are by nature objects of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3, and enemies of God, 
Romans 5.10. Scripture is about his plan from before the beginning of time to redeem a people to himself through the incarnation of the Word, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, who would leave his glory in heaven, take on human flesh, live the sinless life that you and I should live but can't, die the death that you and I should die but in Christ won't, then to rise again demonstrating his victory over sin, death, and Satan, finally ascending to heaven, to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for you and me. That's unbelievable. While he waits the day when he will return to execute God's judgment on all wickedness. And finally, to be worshipped for all eternity by his chosen, redeemed people in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the context. And when we start with the big view of God and then zoom into verses 32 through 40 through the lens of the rest of Hebrews, it becomes clear, I think, that this passage is actually all about Jesus. What I mean is that, again, we first need to come at this particular passage through the lens of the rest of the book of Hebrews. And how does the rest of the book of Hebrews bring this passage into focus? Jake mentioned it at the very beginning of this series, and Charlie mentioned it a few weeks in, and this idea has been very helpful to me throughout the whole summer. It is that the message of the whole book of Hebrews is, Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is a better high priest. Jesus is a mediator of a better covenant. Jesus is the greater sacrifice. Jesus is greater than everything. Therefore, through faith in Jesus, we have been cleansed. We may now approach this holy God in full assurance of faith, Hebrews 10.22. All of chapter 11 has held up to us people who lived great lives of faith. But remember, faith has an object. Faith must be grounded in something other than itself. Faith in faith is nothing. The four men in Mark chapter 2 who brought their paralyzed friend on the mat to Jesus, they didn't just have positive thoughts, good energy about Jesus. No, they believed that he was able to heal. And what did they do? They couldn't get to him because of the crowd. They dug a hole in the roof and lowered their friend in front of Jesus because they believed in him. Or the woman in Mark chapter 5, suffering 12 years of bleeding. She didn't just have a cork board with positive words up there that she looked at over morning coffee and thought how her life would be ideal if she could just follow that. And She didn't have a picture of her healthy self. She trusted Jesus was able to free her from de- her debilitating illness. And she went and she touched and she was healed. And in both these cases, what does Jesus say in verse 5 of Mark 2 to the men? It says, Jesus saw their faith. And to the woman, he said, your faith has made you well. Their faith 
caused action. Sounds a little like the book of James. Her faith and the men's faith was grounded in the trustworthy object of their belief, Jesus. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is believing obedience, as our brother Rich helped us see several weeks ago. Faith is trusting that God will do all that he has promised. Faith has an object, and the object of our faith is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So the question is, is your faith in Jesus? Or is your faith in your own faith? Or are you at a point that you don't have any faith? You don't actually know who Jesus is. You don't trust him for your salvation. The people who are examples in Hebrews chapter 11, although not knowing that God's plan would ultimately come about in the incarnation of the word of God as Jesus, nevertheless had faith in God's promises. Every week in this series, we've heard about this, how our predecessors in the faith trusted in God's promises and then looked forward to what could not be seen. As Charlie said several weeks ago, God uses unlikely and undeserving people to fulfill his promises and carry forward his plan. In these verses today, we see many people who actually I am surprised to see held up as examples of faith. Because when you read the biblical account, you actually see how flawed they are, but which is really good news for us. And it's interesting that most of the named characters in verse 32 all come from the book of Judges, Daniel and Samuel accepted, or David and Samuel accepted. Gideon, we all know the Sunday school story, Judges 6 and 7. Gideon took 32,000 men to fight the Midianites. But God said there were too many because if they got the victory, they would think it was through their own strength, not through God's power. So God allowed those who were afraid to go home, and 22,000 left, 10,000 remained. And God said to Gideon, that's still too many. So he gave Gideon a way of discerning who should stay and who should go, and he was left with 300, 300 men to fight the entire army. And the Lord gave them a great victory. Yay, Gideon, man of faith, right? Well, maybe, unless you know your Bible, before the battle, Judges 6, 14 to 21, and the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. This was before the battle. This was before the 32,000 were chosen. And Gideon seems to have a hard time believing that God will do this because he asks for a sign from God. He asks God to prove that it's really God talking with him. He says, stay here while I make an offering if you're real. Doesn't seem like a greatest example of faith to me, so I actually think this is strike one against faith. But God humors him. He allows Gideon to bring the offering, and when he placed the offering on the rocks, verse 21, the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And by the way, then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. I take that to be a clear sign. But Gideon still does not go. 
verses 36 to 40 of chapter 6. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. This seems like strike two of faith to me. But God is exceedingly gracious and grants Gideon this sign as well. But strike three, I think, is just around the corner as Gideon now asks for the reverse sign, that the fleece be dry and the ground wet. By the way, now you know why whenever anyone says that in making a decision or something, they're setting out a fleece. I don't think that's a sign of great faith. Well, might also be a sign that they haven't progressed beyond the Sunday school story, but as if that's not enough in the life of Gideon, after the battle, he makes an ephod, which a garment for the priests. He was not a priest. This causes Israel to fall into idolatry. Gideon, very flawed and used powerfully by God. How about Barak? Judges chapters 4 and 5. Deborah goes to Barak and relays the message from God that God would give Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army, into Barak's hands. It doesn't seem like Barak believes God, though, because he responds, he won't go unless Deborah goes with him. Note that God's promise of defeat did not hinge on Deborah being present. This seems like a lack of faith to me. But nevertheless, Deborah went with Barak. There was a battle, and although Barak pursued Sisera, the general of the Canaanites, God granted to Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, the opportunity to deliver Israel by killing Sisera. Barak, flawed, just like you and me, and used greatly by God. Jephthah, Judges chapters 11 and 12. Long and short, Jephthah had a terrible home life, was actually run out of town by his own family members, but later the elders of the town asked him to return and lead them in battle against the Ammonites, and he agreed. But before the battle, he prays and makes a vow to God that if he would grant him the victory, that Jephthah would offer as a sacrifice the first thing that came out of his home when he returned. Obviously, God grants the victory to Jephthah. But then what or who comes out of the house to meet him when he returns from the victory? His daughter, his only child. Why make the vow? Doesn't seem like faith. Jephthah, flawed, just like you and me, and used greatly by God. Samson, Judges 13 to 16. Disobedient to his parents, led astray by many women, pursued many women, suffered some significant hardships, but God ultimately gave him a great victory over the Philistines. Samson, very flawed, just like you and me, used greatly by God. King David even, adulterer, murderer, very flawed just like you and me, used greatly by God. 
How about Samuel? He grew up in the presence of the tabernacle under Eli the priest, and God spoke to Samuel audibly as a child when he was living under Eli the priest. Samuel was then a judge in Israel when he grew up, and things seemed to be going well, but in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see how Samuel made his sons judges after him. And it says, Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Something went wrong in Samuel's life. He was flawed, just like you and me, and God used him mightily. So when we read Hebrews 11, 32 to 40, and even all the way back to verse 1, we notice it starts off with these famous Bible characters by name, and at first glance we think they're great until we actually dive into the Scripture and read more about them. Then the luster wears off a little bit, and we see that although they did indeed have faith, they were commended for it, they too are flawed just like us. And I hope that gives us hope. So a question is, when you read Scripture, though, do you tend to think too highly of yourself? Would you never be like so-and-so, doubting God or doing stupid things? Or do you actually realize the depravity of your own heart and cry out there, but for the grace of God go I? Then we come to the larger portion of today's section, verses 33 to 38, with a whole bunch of what we can call no names. Notice their names are not given, but in this group, they are known more by what they experienced, what they suffered, or what they did. In essence, how their faith was manifested is how they're identified. The temptation is to try and play the matching game, though. We have this list of characteristics or things, and then maybe that's in this column, and then you draw the line to column B to figure out which prophet it goes with, and then we end up distracted and on a rabbit trail, and we miss the point. And I don't want us to be distracted. These unnamed saints, starting in verse 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. This is sounding pretty good, right? Victories. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Ooh, that doesn't sound so good anymore. Not sure I want this kind of faith. This definitely does not sound like my best life now. This doesn't sound like prosperity. Health and wealth, believe it and receive it. Name it and claim it. Really? God's sovereign will and blessing may lead to what looks like a prosperous, peaceful, healthy, long life for his people. 
but it may also, this life of faith, be a life of suffering, even great suffering. Slow down and contemplate these verses. Verses 35 to 38, there is great suffering here. Biblical faith in Christ does not automatically protect us from suffering. But genuine faith in Christ protects us from perishing. Jesus says, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. 2 Timothy 3.2, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There are dozens upon dozens more verses we could look at. And besides the clear teaching of Scripture, we have the example of Jesus himself. Our Lord Jesus, the eternal Word of God made flesh, was the embodiment of perfect faith. And he suffered in ways that you and I cannot fathom in a million years. Jesus, perfect faith, immeasurable suffering for your salvation and for mine. Verses 39 and 40 continue. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Back in 13, we read similarly, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. So we've reached the end of chapter 11. But what do we have? We have some named heroes of the faith who are deeply flawed and used powerfully by God. And we have a bunch of unnamed heroes, some of whom experienced victories, but many of whom suffered terribly. And for what? What is it that they have in common? What is going to unify all of chapter 11 for us? Just what we read in verses 13 and 39. That though commended through faith, they did not receive what was promised. Which begs the question, what were they promised? Sure, there were some particular promises of land or children or victory in battle, but there's way more than that. There is this entity, there is this thing, there's this it which was promised, which they did not receive. Verse 39, and which God promised, or which, excuse me, which God has provided for us. Verse 40, which is better and through which we are made perfect in a way they are not. Let me say that again. What was this thing that was promised? and was for us, and which they did not have, and which God has provided. Nothing less than the completion, 
the fullness of the gospel of salvation through the promised Messiah, Jesus. The promised seed of woman, Genesis 3.15. The promised seed of Abraham, Genesis 12.3. The offspring of David, 2 Timothy 2.8. The promised suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The promised wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, Isaiah 9. Jesus. It's all about Jesus. They had the promises to look forward to as if on their tiptoes peering over the horizon to try and see them coming. We have the completed promises and Jesus' finished work to stand on. Finished, complete, perfect work. The work of salvation for us and the full, complete satisfaction of God's wrath, his holy and just wrath towards sin. Poured out full strength on Christ at the cross for you and for me. Jesus in our place. The word in verse 40 for perfect has the same root word as we read in the gospel accounts when Jesus was on the cross and he cried out, it is finished. It's finished. It's complete. It is done. We flawed, sinful people who live on this side of the cross in history while enemies of God, objects of his wrath, are able to be made perfect because of Jesus' work on the cross, his complete, perfect work. We are perfect because of that in a way that the people of Hebrews chapter 11 could not be. Hebrews 10.1, it, the law, can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. And Hebrews 10.4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They could not be made perfect. This being made perfect refers to the once-for-all justification that occurs when a person trusts in Jesus for salvation, when Christ takes all of our sins upon himself and gives us his righteousness. For he made him who knew to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus in our place. We are very aware, however, that this being made perfect does not mean we don't sin. Read Romans 7 or 1 John. Look in your own heart. And this, too, is part of a lot of the already not yets that we see in Scripture. We are sanctified by faith in Christ, even as we are being sanctified through Christ as we grow in our faith. Hebrews 10.10, 10.14, Philippians 3.12. And this faith, this faith in which the old, saints of old persevered, not seeing the outcome of their hope, this faith which sustained those who suffered torture, lions, exile, shame and death, this faith in Jesus is how the follower of Jesus is kept and guarded by God for salvation. 1 Peter 1.4. And these trials, these testings, these sufferings are not without purpose. 1 Peter 1.6 and 7. In this you rejoice, 
Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is refined, tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is greater and Jesus is worth everything. So, how does this look in your life? Question, could someone look at your life, look at your calendar, look at your finances, listen to you talk, watch how you live, and have any clue that Jesus is everything to you? The sufferings of Hebrews chapter 11 do not just belong to another time. There are thousands upon thousands in our own day of whom the world is not worthy. We can be 100% confident that today, this day, somewhere, one or more of our brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering these things for their faith in Jesus. We are still surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And this faith, not faith that I can generate by my own effort or faith in faith, but this faith in Jesus is life. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But we're not born with this faith. And we don't get it automatically from our family. And we don't get it just from showing up to church. So where does it come from? And this faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. Those who are far away from God must hear the gospel. You had to hear it from another person. I could ask, is there anyone here who got their faith in Christ straight from God, meaning no human interaction whatsoever, no person told you about Jesus, no person looked at the Bible with you, no radio broadcast, no pastor, no campus minister, no friend, no family, zero, nothing. You and God in a vacuum, and boom, you have solid biblical faith in Jesus. No, people, people, us, the church, we are the means by which people hear the gospel. God in his mysterious providence has appointed us, you and me, born again sinners to be his fellow workers, ambassadors for Christ, entrusted with the ministry and message of reconciliation That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. 2 Corinthians 5. Every believer has a part to play in this work. It is our work. It is our work, yours and mine, by God's plan, by his design. This is not something we're making up. This message of the gospel, which is used by God 
to cause people to hear and believe is not the sole domain of pastors and missionaries. The pastors are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Ephesians 4.12. There is no room for believers to be in the bleachers or on the sidelines. God has appointed that our place is on the field. There is no second string. There are no bench warmers. On Jesus' team, everyone plays. This ministry and this message has been given to you and me so that we, we can tell people who are far from God of the Savior who died for them. People like your neighbor, your roommate, person down the street, parents on your kid's sports team, or the Iraqi or Kurdish or Sudanese or Somali, Bhutanese, Nepali, Vietnamese who have come to Fargo as new Americans. The thousand plus international students on our campuses the tens of thousands of others in the Fargo-Moorhead area who are far from God. And we've been given this ministry and this message to share with the 3.2 billion people around the world who have not yet heard, who are part of the 7,143 unreached people groups that exist today. They're waiting for someone to tell them that Jesus is greater. Seriously consider who God wants you to minister to. Seriously consider that God may be showing you this morning that you've been appointed to bring the gospel to an unreached people group. Can you imagine anything more eternally, eternally significant and eternally rewarding than being among the first believers in all of recorded history to share the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ with a people group or with an individual who have never heard. So who is God calling you to? Who are the people to whom God has sent you? Ask, pray, Pray for opportunities to share the gospel. God will answer that prayer. And when he does, even though it's scary, step into it and obey and share around the block or around the world. Your faith in Jesus, your believing obedience, your assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen, your confidence that God will do all that he has promised to do, this faith, this faith, when spoken as true gospel hope to people who are lost and perishing, this faith when suffered for, this faith when lived out every day, this faith when died for, 
shows the world that Jesus is greater and that Jesus is worth everything. Pray with me. Lord God, we are aware at this moment of the weight of your words, our inadequacy to do all that you've commanded. Only by the presence and the indwelling of your Holy Spirit can we be empowered to do the things that you've called us to, and you promise that you are with us. Lord Jesus, when you sent your believers out to make disciples of all the nations, you assured us that you are with us to the very end of the age. Elsewhere, you say you will never leave us or forsake us. All the resources of being an adopted child of God are ours through Christ, not because of our own merit, because of what Christ did for us on the cross and based on the promises of your word. Heavenly Father, for those of us who are in Christ, who are confident, who have faith that our sins are forgiven because of what Jesus did, help us to walk truly in a manner that is worthy of the calling that we've received in Christ, which is to all of us, every single one of us, to make disciples, to be witnesses, ministers of reconciliation to the world around us. But God, I am aware that not everyone has faith. Lord God, please move in the hearts of people who are still far from you. Reveal in their hearts the love that you have for them, the love that you have for them, the desire you have for a relationship with them that is only possible once they are forgiven of their sins because their sin is separating them from you. God, open hearts. Bring repentance and faith. Use us, God, for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen.